As many of you know, I'm sure all of you know by now, that Katie and I grew up in Wisconsin, which means we are Packer fans. Yeah, we all know. We've heard enough. Uh, But over time, we've learned firsthand um, that Bears fans don't really like the Packers. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. That's you know we practice unconditional love here. and but there's you know kind of this attitude, and we watched games, of course, at Larry's house or at other people's houses, where we were the only people cheering for the Packers, and everyone else was cheering against them and cheering for the Bears. And while some of the Packer influence has kind of seeped down across the border because we're you know up in northern Illinois here, it's still this isn't I wouldn't say uh, a place that's really conducive for being a Packer fan. There's is you know we're Packer fans living in Bears country, so for the most part, TV doesn't prioritize showing Packer games, clothing places, you know, it's a little different because we are close to the border, but clothing places generally aren't prioritizing having Packer clothes um, for you to buy and cheer for them, and people just don't like our team. And because we're Packer fans living in Bears country, we, we take notice when you see another Packer fan, because you assume most people are Bears fans, you see another Packer fan, it's like, hey, go Packers, you know, they're wearing a hat or something, Katie has this Packer hat that she wears, and people, she'll forget she's wearing it, and people say, nice hat. She's like, oh, oh it's a Packer hat. You know, it's other Packer people seeing it. So there's almost this you know, instant camaraderie and instant connection with other Packer fans. And I wouldn't say you know, we're experiencing any sort of real hardship. Uh, you know, um, you know, just, just a, it's just different living in Bears country. But you could say that living in Illinois uh, doesn't make it easy to be a Packer fan. Uh, the environment is conditions are not set up for people to be a Packer fans, and in fact, the environment is set up for people to be Bears fans and to cheer against the Packers. And Illinois uh, has suitable conditions for being Bears fans. Maybe this is going too far, but maybe Bears fans would say there's no suitable conditions for being Bears fans. Is that going? Would you say that? Does that cross a line? I don't know. I feel like Bears fans are kind of like, oh, they're going to lose anyway. So, <laughs> but. Uh, Let's imagine Katie and I uh, went to a Bears vs. Packers game at Soldier Field in Chicago, and we're like, we're going to cheer for the Packers. And in that environment, we would experience conditions even more focused against us being Packer fans because, you know, walking around is just kind of normal everyday activity, but actually going to a game where all the biggest fans are rallied together to watch their team play would be an environment even more against uh, us being Packer fans. And we would be cheering when other people were booing. We'd be booing when other people were cheering. And in that setting, it would be even more difficult to be a Packer fan than it is just in Illinois in general. And this image of being fans of the visiting away team is a good way for us to really understand what it means to be a Christian, not only in the first century, but in every century, and what it means to be a Christian today. And this is our third message in this series, laying out our growth theme for the year of uh, inviting others uh, to surrender all of life to Jesus. And my hope and prayer uh, for this year is that we be growing in our joy in Christ so that it become a joy for us to tell others people about him. And today we're focusing on how to be ourselves, how to be the real you. And if you were a Packer fan uh, at a Bears vs. Packer game in, at Soldier Field in Chicago, you might find it difficult to be yourself. It's an environment... Um, where it's not easy to be yourself. There's a, there's a cost to it, uh, to be the real you, a Packer fan. 
But perhaps you're getting distracted by the thought of being a Packer fan because it makes you throw up in your mouth a little bit. So let me switch it. Let me switch it. If you are a Bears fan at a Bears versus Packer game at Lambeau Field in Green Bay, you might find it difficult to be yourself, to be a Bears fan, because the whole environment is set up to be a Packer fan. And that is an environment where it might be hard to be the real you. Well, the real me is a Bears fan, but I'm maybe feeling a little... You know, not wanting to let that out too extremely or too obvious in this moment. There's a pastor named Tony Evans uh, who has said, I find it really helpful, he says, in the United States, Christians are no longer the home team. We're the visiting away team. We no longer have home field advantage. And if you think about what it means to be the visiting away team, um, the Everything is set up kind of against you. All the decorations, all the fans, the city isn't on your side. I mean, people, I think, what do they call it um, uh, in Seattle? What do they call it, the 12th man or is that what it's the 13th man? Like, they call the crowd the other player because they're so loud to try and distract the other team. And so if you're the visiting away team, the crowd is not only against you, but they're doing things for you to mess up to, so you can't hear what the, the coach or the other players are saying. And if you're a follower of Jesus in the United States... We are losing or have already lost home field advantage. The environment is not for us. It is against us. And we no longer are, uh, have Christian values and morals uh, being what the society wants to uphold for the most part. And especially around sexuality, our values and priorities are seen as the opposite of what the culture. Our values and priorities are seen as the enemy kind of. And so maybe people uh, label the Bible's teaching as bigoted and, and hateful. People think that the belief that Jesus is the only way to God is just kind of exclusive and arrogant. How can you claim that you have the one way to God? We live in a world where our beliefs about God, humanity, and how to be in relationship with God are seen as hateful, exclusive, bigoted, mean-spirited, unfair, and harmful. And there's a famous atheist who has since um, died named Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book which the title kind of sums up the world we're living in. His book was, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. This is the world we live in for, in, in many ways. There's still people seeking after God, still people uh, prioritizing and seeing their spiritual life as important. But there is this sense of kind of organized religion. The church is a bad influence. It poisons everything. And because of this, we may find it difficult to be ourselves, to be who we are. You may find it difficult to be the real you. And if you think about it, when is it the hardest to be yourself? When is it the most difficult? And it's when people don't agree with you. When what you say or do might offend someone. When, when you don't know if the real you is going to be accepted um, and respected by the people you're with. When, when people aren't on your side. When people see you as the problem. And it's hard to be yourself when the majority of the crowd is cheering against you, when they're cheering, they don't like your team, they don't like who you cheer for. And in short, it's most difficult to be ourselves when there's a cost to being who we are, to being who you are. And in all times and all places, to be a follower of Jesus has always meant to swim against the current. You're swimming against the current. You're rubbing against the grain of, of the world. The world has always been against God. You have to paddle upstream. The world will always be a, a source of friction and resistance if we're wanting to follow Christ. There's times when it's less against God. I mean, early in our country, I, God 
and the Bible were taken very seriously. I mean, you can see it's still left over in the courts of like we place our hand on a Bible and, uh, you know, in, I'm totally um, forgetting what's on our, our, our coins. In there. there we go. That's, that's it. That was, that was a test to see if you knew. So in God we trust. You know, it's right there because this is how our nation was founded. Um, but yet, now we're finding a time where we're wanting to kind of separate from that as a country. And yet Jesus was very clear that we're not to let this stop us from living for him. In fact, Jesus actually commissions us to make disciples of other people, to go into the world and make more disciples. We're disciples who are supposed to make disciples. And Jesus commissions us to be disciples uh, out in the world that is against us. And the question we need to ask is, well, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to make disciples in this world? How are we going to be disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus out of people who know nothing about Jesus, have no interest in Jesus, have decided Jesus isn't for them, or even who are opposed to Jesus. In other words, how do we play for Team Jesus and recruit for Team Jesus in a world cheering against Team Jesus and that doesn't like Team Jesus? And we can answer this question about how we can be disciples that make disciples by looking at what the early church did. Okay, Jesus had his time on earth where he was making disciples, and then he had his core group of 12, and then there's kind of a bigger batch of maybe 72 when you see in Acts 1, after Jesus ascends into heaven, there's this group of 120 sitting there kind of saying, well, what do we do now? And so, okay, Jesus made disciples of these people in Jerusalem that are gathered together. There's probably others scattered throughout the, uh, the Middle uh, East at that time. Um, but what did they do then? Jesus is gone. He sent his spirit. How do they make disciples uh, as they go along? And when we look at what the early Christians did, we see several different things. When some of them, uh, some people were called to physically go to other places as missionaries and church planters, like the Apostle Paul and his team. This is one way to make disciples. Then others were called to stay where they are and be pastors or teachers within the local church and to make disciples that way. And then there are people who became Christians who stayed where they were and continued in their normal, everyday life. They continued their jobs. They continued raising their families. Uh, they continued in all their relationships with friends and relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers. And this describes everyone in this room besides me. So all of you are that category because you're not a pastor or teacher of a church. You, haven't, you're not, you didn't leave somewhere to be a missionary or a church planter. I mean, Bob and Jean... You guys did, but you know now you're here, and we could see ourselves as missionaries and church planters here, but that's kind of not your, uh, your, your day job, if you want to think of it. You're not a church planter or a, a pastor. And so what does it look like for you to make disciples in your normal, everyday life? Because the reality is um, all of us are uh, paid to do full-time ministry, and that might sound kind of odd, uh, that we all have that in, in common, um, what the difference is, is who pays you to do it. And the church pays me to do this full-time ministry of equipping you guys actually to do full-time ministry. And your jobs pay you to do full-time ministry. Our paychecks just come from different places because my job, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip the body of Christ to do the work of ministry, not for me to do all the work of ministry. And so all of you are ministers. Um, you just get your paycheck from a different place. And so what does it look like to make disciples in our normal everyday life. Well, in, the, in the New Testament, we have letters that were written to churches, groups of believers, um, telling them this is how you're supposed to live your life. 
um, and they give us a good insight in what does it look like to be a Christian in the first century. And what the writers of these letters often assume is that people around these believers, people around these disciples of Jesus, knew that they were followers of Jesus. Somehow the people around them knew that they had decided to trust in this guy named Jesus who claimed to die for their sins, who was resurrected. They thought he was still alive. And you can get these early letters of people who aren't believers describing what the, not in the New Testament, but just in history of like, they worship this man as if he's a god. And you know, so people describing this is what the church looked like from the outside. They're seeing what that life is like. And so they could tell that they were uh, followers of Jesus by the way they talked, by how they conducted themselves, by what they uh, participated in, what they now refuse to participate in, that they once were participating in. You could see that they're believers by uh, their participation in the life of their church family, by their transformed life. They lived differently, they talked differently, they acted differently. And because of this, people around them took notice. They could tell something's up with these people. There's a, something new about them. And imagine you switched from cheering for the Bears to cheering for the Packers. I know. Can't imagine it, but let's just try, by the Spirit's help, you know, you, you start wearing Packer jerseys, you start wearing a Packer hat, you stop watching the Bears game, and when you're watching with others, all of a sudden they notice, why aren't you cheering for the Bears anymore, why are you, you know, saying hooray when the Packers are, you know, getting a first down or whatever, like, what happened, something just changed since the last time we were together, like, all of a sudden you're wearing all the wrong clothes, you're, you know, doing, you're cheering for the wrong team. And many people probably wouldn't care. Well, who you cheer for is your business, so, you know, whatever, that's, you can do that, that's fine. Some people wouldn't like it and would ridicule you and possibly pressure you to turn back. What are you doing cheering for the Packers? You're such a traitor, having that pressure of, like, you, you, you made the wrong decision here. Others wouldn't get it and would perhaps be curious. Okay, you've been a Bears fan your whole life. What, made, what brought you to this decision? Why did you decide to switch to being a fan of the Packers? And some people probably didn't care that their neighbors had become Christians. Who you worship is your business. That's your religion. You know, you just do your thing. Others didn't like it and responded with hostility, rejection, and ridicule. What are you doing? You're ruining our way of life. We worship these gods. What are you doing worshiping that one god? And this guy who died on the cross, what are you thinking? How can you think that he is a god? Look how shameful his death was. He got beaten up by the Romans. And some people might say, I wouldn't do what you're doing, but you know, I'm kind of glad it's working for you. Some people might notice and say, you're a different person ever since you started following that Jesus guy. What's, what's going on with that? Some would perhaps, perhaps ask combative questions like, how can you worship that God? And some would ask curious questions like, what led you to this decision? Why, why are you doing the things you're doing? Your life has changed. What brought you to this point? And of course, there's everything in between. And Jesus assumed that people would notice when people started following him. And the New Testament writers assume that people would notice when uh, these believers had started following Jesus. And so there's many instructions in the New Testament about how to respond when people take notice of that, whether they're taking notice out of curiosity, whether they're taking notice um, kind of in a, uh, being against the people for following Jesus. And so they give instructions about what you should do, what you should say, and we're going to look at two of those instructions. And the first one's in a letter that one of Jesus' disciples named Peter um, wrote to a group of churches, and this is in First Peter uh, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Peter tells them what to do and what to say when people mistreat them for being followers of Jesus. 
And after telling them, you need to bless people who do you harm. Don't retaliate. Don't curse them. Don't, you, you need to bless them. Do good to them. Love them. And then in 1 Peter 3, 13-17, he tells them uh, some instructions about what to say. So verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. These believers to whom Peter is writing are being mistreated. First Peter is one of the letters which I think shows us most clearly what it was like in the everyday life to turn to Jesus. They were experiencing a lot of uh, people rejecting them, ridiculing them, and being mistreated. But he says, don't fear those mistreating you. Don't be troubled, he says. Instead, honor Christ as Lord in your hearts. Honor him as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, don't let these people influence what you do, but let Christ influence what you do. Remember who's on the throne. These people aren't your king. These aren't your Lord. Remember who's on the throne. Don't be troubled. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. And Peter knows that some people will be combatively asking them, why do you put your hope in that Jesus person? And so he says in verse 15, to always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. To, when people are saying, why do you put your hope in that person? Be prepared to answer that. But then someone might also ask them a question of curiosity. And so imagine, perhaps you don't have to imagine, perhaps you can think back to an experience where you had people mistreating you because of your belief in Christ. But if someone's mistreating you, ridiculing you, reviling you, harming you, and cursing you, but all you do is respond to them by blessing them, by loving them, by praying for them, doing good to them, that might catch their attention. If you respond to somebody's mistreatment uh, with no fear, you're untroubled, and you're staying committed to Jesus despite everything, they may all of a sudden stop and be like, what's going on here? This is, we're, you know, we're beating up on you, we're, you know, we're taking your stuff, we're breaking your things, and all you're doing is praying for us and still loving us and asking God to forgive us. So what's going on here? What, what, what's this hope that you have? I haven't seen this before. Why do you have such a hope right now while you're getting beat up and mistreated? And Peter tells believers to be ready to give a reason for our hope when people ask. And the Apostle Paul shows us a little bit more proactive approach. It's kind of a reactive approach of like, if people are doing something and ask, what's the reason for your hope? Be ready to give an answer. And then in Colossians, the letter to Colossians that Paul wrote, chapter 4, starting in verse 2, uh, verses 2 through 4, Paul says, he, he gives them instructions for how to pray for his gospel mission. And so let's read verses 2 through 4 of Colossians chapter 4. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. And Paul's prayer request here for his gospel mission can be a model for us of what we ought to pray for as we're living on mission uh, in Woodstock, McHenry County, and in the various towns in which we live, in our workplaces, among our family and friends. 
And so what does he do? He prays that God may open a door to declare the gospel and that he would make it clear. He wants God to open doors to talk about Jesus and he wants God to help him to make it clear. And he asks for other people to pray this. And so we can pray it for ourselves. We can pray it for each other. We can pray it for believers around the world. Then next he instructs the Colossians in their gospel mission. In verses 5 to 6, he says this. He says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so in Paul's mind, he's not the only one who's going to have open doors. He sees that these believers in Colossae, even as he's traveling around as a missionary, he sees these believers in Colossae are going to have open doors to declare the gospel. And so he's not the only one that will have them. He's not the only one that needs to be prepared uh, to speak it clearly. Paul wants the believers in the city of Colossae to live among the people who don't believe in such a a way uh, that they're making the most of every opportunity to represent and to talk about Jesus. So according to Paul, we should be looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus. We should be praying for opportunities to talk about Jesus. And we should be ready to talk about Jesus when opportunities come up. So we should be looking, we should be praying, and we should be ready. This is a time of year where people are often thinking about setting goals. How do I want this year to be different than last year? What do I want to change about myself, about my environment, whatever it is? I was listening to a leadership podcast this week um, by a pastor named Craig Groeschel, and it was entitled, High Impact Habits for Successful Leaders. And in it, he suggests this. He says, instead of setting goals that focus on what you want to do this year, set them around who you want to become. And so he suggests, instead of setting do goals, set who goals. Not what you want to do, but who you want to be. And like I said, our growth theme for this year is inviting others to surrender. Inviting others to surrender all of life to Jesus. And I think the best way for us to pursue this growth goal is to make it a who goal instead of a do goal. And so here's the goal I have for you that kind of sums up uh, what we've been talking about in this, um, in these two passages. Uh, it's a goal for me. It's a goal for you. It's a goal for all of us. So here it is. Be the real you in real relationships with people who really need Jesus. Make that your goal this year. Be the real you in real relationships with people who really need Jesus. So let's break that down. First, be the real you. And who is the real you? Who are you? Well, the real you is a follower of Jesus. The real you is someone for whom uh, Jesus has made a monumental difference. The real you is someone who's been blessed by Jesus. The real you is a disciple of Jesus, a child of God, a witness to what Jesus has done in your life and other people's lives. And the real you is someone for whom Jesus is the most important thing in the world. You're a changed person. You're a new creation. That's who you are. That's the real you. So be the real you. Second, be the real you in real relationships, which means we don't treat people as projects. We don't fake caring about people or fake being interested in them. We aren't in relationships with ulterior motives. An ulterior motive would be, I'm only in this relationship to convert them or get them to come to church. And if they don't do those things or say no to those things, okay, I'm moving on to a new relationship. That's what it looks like to be in a fake relationship with ulterior motives. 
And we want to be in real relationships. A real relationship means you actually want to do things with this person. You actually care about them. It means you don't only invite them to church things. Like if you show up at a church thing, then I'll spend time with you. But it's actually a real relationship. And also, it isn't a real relationship if you can't be the real you. If you have to hide the real you, it isn't a real relationship. And if they have to hide the real them, it isn't a real relationship. It's, it has to be both around. It, it isn't a real relationship if you never talk about the thing that's most important to you. It's a real relationship if you can be the real you, and if they can be the real them. So third, be the real you in real relationships with people who really need Jesus. And the reality is that everyone needs Jesus. Us, them, uh, whoever it be. And I was helped by a book that says um, we don't love people with ulterior motives, but we do love people with ultimate motives. We don't have those ulterior motives, but we do have ultimate motives when we're loving people. Ultimate motives means you're praying and hoping that this person will come to know Jesus. And you're praying for, the, for look, you're praying for, looking for, and using opportunities to talk about Jesus in the context of a real relationship. You have a real relationship. You have ultimate motives of, I'm not really loving if this person, I never tell them about Jesus, and that's my greatest hope for them. And if you think about you know, a scenario where you have the cure for cancer, and you have a friend with cancer, and every time you see your, your friend, it's obvious that they're sick and dying and struggling and in pain. And when you talk, they tell you about all the things they're trying in order to get better. And you listen well, you empathize, you show understanding. You talk about the weather, sports, work, COVID, and many other topics. But you never bring up the fact that, hey, I actually have the cure for cancer. Uh, you don't have to be sick and dying and struggling while you are. You're looking for all these solutions, but I actually have found the solution. And it, it works perfectly 100% of the time. We wouldn't really be a good friend if we just kind of neglected to mention that. Like, oh, by the way, I have the cure for cancer that you're struggling with. And it isn't really loving to them to never mention that you know what can rescue them from their condition. In the same way, we're not loving friends or relatives or acquaintances or neighbors or co-workers if we keep quiet about what they really need. Everyone really needs Jesus, including us. The real you is someone who believes that every person's eternity depends on their response to Jesus. And the real you is someone who cares about people's eternal destination. And the people in our lives are sick with sin and dying because of sin. They're spiritually starving. They're spiritually dry and parched. They're hungering and thirsting for God, and they don't even know it. And they're going and drinking spiritual poison because it's the best thing they, they can find. And yet we have the thing that they are really looking for, what their heart is hungering for. They're dying without God. And everyone is someone who really needs Jesus. And other people's needs for Jesus is a point of connection for us. Because we need to be people that know that we really need Jesus. Is that with the real you is a needy, weak, broken, sinful, struggling, doubting human being. The real you is a human being with deep needs and desires that you want fulfilled. And the real you is someone who has found all of that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We believe in a real God who engages with us where we really are, and then he makes a real difference in our lives. And so, uh, being the real you starts with being the real you in a real relationship with God, 
as someone who really needs Jesus. That's where it all starts. If we're not there, it's going to be very hard to be the real us with people who really need Jesus. Like, you really need Jesus. And they're like, well, what about you? And we start from this place of humility and need of coming before Jesus. Of, so now we are in a, a real relationship with God. We're being the real us in relationship with God. And isn't it good news that we don't have to hide who we really are with God, that we don't have to fake it till we make it, we don't have to perform or pretend, and we just get to be the real us with God. He already knows that there's no point in pretending uh, that we're something better than we are. We can be the real us with God, in a real relationship with God, as someone who really needs Jesus. God, I just do not have this together. I need your mercy, I need your grace, I need your love and forgiveness, and I feel like two of the most basic things, or maybe three, are saying to God, I'm sorry, thank you, and help. It's like, that's kind of, you could summarize the gospel in, that, in those three words. I'm sorry, thank you, and help. And we can be the real us with God. And that gives us freedom to be the real you in real relationships as someone who really needs Jesus. It's not just you're in a relationship with other people who really need Jesus, but you're in this relationship as someone who also really needs Jesus, showing our faults, our failures, uh, things we're struggling with, of saying times we've doubted. So be the real you in real relationships with people who really need Jesus. And the challenge is that the world doesn't make it easy for us to do this. It doesn't make it easy for us to play for Team Jesus. And sometimes there's a cost to being the real you. Sometimes there's a cost to being a Christian, to being a follower of Jesus, to saying and doing the things Jesus commands us to say and do, to valuing and prioritizing the things that are of God and his kingdom. It's most difficult to be yourself when there's a cost to being who you are. Sometimes that cost is real, and sometimes we're just so afraid of finding out if there is a cost to being who we are that we just never take the risk of showing the real us to people. There's a term in the counseling profession called differentiation. I mentioned it before. You know, it's this huge word. I don't really expect any of us to remember it. But to remember the concept, differentiation is the ability to remain connected in relationship to significant people in our lives and yet not have our reactions and behavior determined by them. So if you think about it, it's the ability to remain connected and to be ourselves. And we have a hard time with that because you have your own beliefs, goals, and values and you don't compromise them because of other people with the people you're connected with. That's what it means to be differentiated. And the way to be differentiated is to have a solid sense of self that doesn't come from other people. And if you don't have a solid sense of self that you're receiving from God, of what God says of you, you'll do one of two things. Either you will look to other people to tell you who you are and what you're supposed to do. If you don't know who you are, it's like, I'm just going to do whatever they think I should do. I'm going to do what will please them. I'm going to do what will make them approve of me. That's one option. Or the other is we just disconnect ourselves from people who are different from us. Eh, I can't be myself with them, so I'm just going to find people that I can be myself with. And of course, the church is supposed to be the safest place in the world for us to be ourselves, be ourselves as Christians, and to be ourselves as needy, broken, sinful people that need Jesus. But both of these options of just looking for, letting people tell us who we are, or disconnecting ourselves from people who are like us, it's the opposite of what we see Jesus do, what he tells us to do. It's the opposite of what we saw in First Peter this morning, opposite of what we saw in Colossians. What we see there is that continue to be connected with people while at the same time continuing to be yourself. Be who you are. Remain connected. They can break it off with you by their misdeeds, but 
be who you are. So make this year about being the real you in real relationships with people who really need Jesus. I think one of the most telling descriptions of Jesus is him being called a friend of sinners. I mean, these are like opponents calling him a friend of sinners. The guy's a friend of sinners. He's just always hanging out with all these messy people who can't get their lives together. He hung out with them. He ate with them. He talked with them. He went to their parties. They felt comfortable with them. And isn't that great to hear? As we sit here, would Jesus really want to hang out with me? Well, yes, we see that he was hanging out with all the most messed up people. And so it doesn't matter how messed up you are, Jesus wants to be with you. And he always acted like himself, the Son of God, the Messiah. And he was clear about what he wanted them to do. Repent and believe the good news. They knew what he was about, even if they didn't, people didn't agree with him. And perhaps you think telling others about Jesus requires boldness. And if that's your thinking, you're right. But the word boldness in the New Testament is not so much about getting in people's faces. Like, I'm just going to tell them what they need to hear, whether they want to hear it or not. It's more about coming out and saying things freely. There's a lack of fear. And the word can be translated as plain speech or candor or freedom. There's a genuineness to it. And I think another way to think of it is to be bold means to be the real you. You're just kind of honest and genuine. Like, this is me. Take it or leave it. And if you do a Google search of what people say about um, cheering for the visiting away team while you're at you know, the stadium of, well, I guess you're always at the stadium. If you're visiting away team, you're at the stadium of the home team. And it's interesting, they kind of have this code of conduct or like this etiquette that they suggest. They say, you know, be respectful. Um, don't be arrogant and rude. You're the visiting away team. And you can be the real you, just don't be a jerk about it, basically. And interestingly, our passages from today give a similar attitude when talking to people about Jesus. Have gentleness, have respect, have wisdom, have graciousness. People may not like that you're playing for Team Jesus or that you're cheering for Team Jesus, but we can be all in for Team Jesus in a way that is gentle, respectful, wise, and gracious. And the goal is that so people would, the only thing they could be offended by is Jesus, not our actions, how we're representing him. And so we're gentle, respectful, gracious, wise, so that the only offense is, offense is saying, this guy died for your sins, and unless you, you know, bow down before him, you're going to die in your sins, and you're going to go to hell. So I want to give you two actions quickly as we um, close to think about for this week. And this first one comes from my lovely and wise wife, Katie, and so credit where it's due, is she thinks about, when I tell stories about my day or my week or my life, my life, am I telling that story differently to an unbeliever as I would to a believer? Does that make sense? Like if somebody asks, what'd you do this weekend? And is the story of what you did this weekend, are there two different versions of that, one for believers, one for people who aren't believers? What I want to encourage you to do is have one story you tell for both. I mean, maybe you'd go deeper with a believer. You'd say different things, use different language, but tell the same content, maybe with words that are um, appropriate for that person. So tell the same story, whether it's a believer or someone who's not a believer. Second, when people ask, how are you, or how was your weekend, consider what answer would show them the real you. I'm kind of working through this. I mean, I go to work at Starbucks you know, several times a week. 
And often they say, people ask, what's going on or how are you? And it's like, what sort of, and that's just an opportunity, like, I mean, sometimes people aren't literally asking, they're just saying hi, but it's kind of like, what would, what would the real me say um, to this person, whether a believer or not? And so, be the real you, see who wants more, leave the results to God. Just be who you are, see who responds. Be who you are and see who wants more. Be who you are and see who's curious. Be who you are and see who's attracted and see who's repelled. Be the real you. See who wants more. Give the results to God. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, you've made us someone into people that are far different than what we would be without you. And so God, would you help us to be the real you the real us would you help us to be ourselves with people with each other and with people in our lives would you help us to be ourselves with you and God would you just let us hear some of those words we heard at the beginning that you're saying to us you are mine I've redeemed you Lord would you let that form our sense of self our identity our value and worth since then we pray